Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, which is page 816 in our church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. We're going to read the first four verses of chapter 16. This is a two-part as we speak about money and giving. So we're going to read the Bible and then we're going to pray and ask God for his blessing. Okay, let's hear the word of the Lord. Now, about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. Amen. May God give us understanding of his word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we give glory to your name and we thank you for the privilege of public worship. It's just a wonderful thing to be able to sing to you with all our heart and all our mind and all our strength. And we thank, we thank you that much of heaven will be um, a lot of singing. And so we give glory to you now that we can in some small way express that. Our concern this morning is that the evil one will not come and so that he'll steal the word that we won't understand it. That our hearts won't be very shallow so that we'll we take the word in, but when difficulty comes because of it, it will be instant bloom and then, then quickly fading away. We also are concerned that the worries of this life, the, the pleasures of this life, life riches and um, the desire for other things, as Jesus said, will come in and choke the word, making it so that we bear no real visible fruit. So please, for Jesus' sake, give us godly hearts, happy hearts, noble hearts that can receive your truth, and then, Father, bear fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. So, God, we look to you to do this because you're the only one that can. And we pray in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Charles Learson is a journalist, he's an author, and he's the adjunct professor of the University of New York Graduate School of Journalism. He recently wrote a, a book, it's actually a award-winning book, on professional baseball's legendary Ty Cobb. If you don't know who Ty Cobb was, he was a center fielder, he had a 366 lifetime batting average, uh, he played at the turn of the 20th century, he was the first person ever uh, inducted into baseball's Hall of Fame. But for all that stuff, most Americans who know him think of him as just an awful person. They think of him as a racist, a cheat, who liked to injure other players. Indeed, some people even think of him as a murderer. For example, the director of the 1995 movie about Ty Cobb was quoted as saying, it's well known that Cobb killed as many as three people. Now, it's very easy to see why that kind of view was prevailing. People had been told over and over again that Cobb was a bad man. His reputation began to feel like evidence and then eventually truth. And this horrible reputation that he had was really started after his death in 1961. And you can trace it all back to just one man. The man's name was Al Stump. And he began to write articles and, and small books about Cobb. And he began to make all kinds of claims. Ty Cobb said no to children who wrote him asking for his autograph. So Mr. Cobb would steam off the given postage stamp, use them for himself, and never send a kid a letter or an autograph. Ty Cobb cleated other pairs purposely on the field. Ty Cobb hated people of color. Ty Cobb was as mean as you can get. 
Now, what's interesting here is that when Mr. Learson pitched the idea about this book to his publisher, he thought it was going to be pretty easy and a straightforward write. Ty Cobb's a bad man. Everybody knows he's a bad man. Therefore, I'm going to write a book about a bad man. But Charles Learson, as a professional journalist, did what all good journalists should do. He went back to the original source material, newspaper accounts, documents, families, letters, diaries, and... All these things were resources that Mr. Stump, Al Stump, he never even sourced. In other words, Mr. Stump's stories and writings on Cobb were so out of sorts that when Mr. Learson began to do his research, he said, and I'm quoting here, it didn't even take me 10 minutes to find something that brought me up short. Therefore, when the right man did his due diligence, checked original sources, What had been previously believed about Ty Cobb for so long was discovered as completely untrue. Now, Ty Cobb wasn't an angel, but he was nothing at all like the kind of person that so many believed him to be. How do we know this to be true? Well, the original sources that we went to, the original sources were checked and sourced out. Now, why do I begin a talk, this talk, on giving this way? Here's the answer. I began... This talk on giving this way, because I would suggest to you that there's a possibility that for some of us here, what we've always assumed was true about giving to the work of the Lord in the local church, it may not be. Now, I understand that some of you here and you're new to this whole giving to a local church thing and others, this would seem to be old hat. But what I want to say to you again, for some of us here, there is a possibility what we've always assumed was true about giving to the work of the Lord in the local church, it may not be. We haven't checked the original sources, the scriptures. We we don't know the difference between the old and new covenant when it comes to giving, uh, coupled with correct understanding and correct application of God's truth as, as we give. But maybe for some of us, we simply listen to the latest Christian financial guru or with the latest Christian book about giving, and they say, this is how we do it, and so we do what they say. Well, maybe we should, Maybe we shouldn't. We're going to have to check our Bible to see if what they're telling us is true. Or is this simply them giving their own personal conviction, peppered with some Bible verses, taken out of context to make their point? Because what is true here when it comes to dollars and cents in America and the church, it has to be true everywhere else in the world. You're sensible people. You'll need to check your Bibles and decide for yourself. Last time, we learned that Christian doctrine is to order our Christian living. That was verse 58, right? The resurrection has certain implications in our life. The implications are God-given. We can't make up these implications in our head. Verse 58 of chapter 15 tells us that. If your Bible's open, you'll see this. In every age, and every stage in our life, keep on keeping on. Stay stuck in the work of the Lord always, no matter what. No matter what. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Why? You see it there? Because it is worth it. And eternity is going to prove it. So if things are not going like splendidly right now, big deal. Big deal. Because in heaven, in heaven, it'll show that all our work and all our labor labor was well worth it in the eyes of God. And this is just a simple reminder, right? If our belief is to be believable to the watching world, then our behavior has to be biblical, right? If people are going to believe us, our behavior must be biblical. That if our faith is really real, 
It's going to reveal itself in certain ways. We can't make up those ways. Verse 58 is one of the ways, one of the chief ways that we show this to be true. So then, in the opening verses of chapter 16, Paul moves from from serving to giving. Right? High Christian doctrine, resurrection, now serving and giving. And of course, it's about money. And what Paul's going to do for us here is give us the answer to the question, what is What does it mean to be godly? Right? What does it mean to be godly? Well, to be godly, it's going to have an impact on our wallet. So in these opening verses, Paul gives instruction for a collection of money to be made for God's people, specifically, as we'll find out, due to a circumstance of poverty. And this is what we need to know before we jump into these questions. Paul, by way of apostolic authority, and what that means is this is Christ's authority here. Jesus Christ, through Paul's pen, is giving us patterns and principles we are to follow as God's children for giving money to the Lord's work in the local church. I'm going to say that again. Christ, through Paul's pen, is giving us patterns and principles we are to follow as God's children for giving money to the Lord's work in the local church. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to answer some straightforward questions. We're not going to get through all of it today purposely. Lord willing, next time we'll we'll zip this up with a little bit of help from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 if you want to read ahead and look into that. Okay, question number one. Don't read ahead now, but later on. Question number one. Who was the collection for? There you see, if your Bible's open, the collection was for God's people. Hagios is the Greek word. It means those who have been set apart by, by grace for God. Why is that important? Well, it's important because these people are God's people. These are people who by God's grace have been saved from their sins and they're now declared holy. This is what the word means. Declared holy and they're made holy. That's Hebrews 10. Declared holy. Justification. Such great news. God treats the Christian always just as if they've never sinned. Made holy. God is interested in our perfection and our holiness. So with God's help, we are killing off sin. That's hagios. In other words, hagios is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. We're called to this distinctive kind of life. We are sinners who still sin, who've been made saints, called to live a holy life. Now, sometimes when you study the Bible, you need texts from other books in the Bible to give you a better sense of what's happening. So if we only had verse 1 and verse 3 here to answer our question about collection, there'd be a whole lot of holes that we wouldn't be able to fill. And so one of the most basic rules of biblical interpretation, and we need to know this, excuse me, is that we we need to use the Scripture oftentimes to interpret the Scripture. Understand that? We need the Bible, other verses, to help us understand other parts of the Bible. And when we do that and we ask the question, okay, are there other places in the New Testament— which helps us understand what's happening here in 1 Corinthians 16 more fully. And our answer would be, yes, there is. And I'm going to tell you them now. Let me give you one example, actually three. Romans chapter 15, verse 26. Paul speaks to this issue. He says, I'm on my way to Jerusalem and the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. So there are these churches that are making a collection for the saints in need in Jerusalem. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, same thing. We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. 
In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And again, the churches were commended. They weren't doing so great financially, but they got money together and they sent it to Paul to the church in Jerusalem. Finally, the book of Acts, the history book of the church, Acts chapter 24, verse 17. Paul is on trial before Felix, and he mentions this. This is what he says. After of an absence of several years, I think about three years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. So in Paul's third missionary journey, part of his work was to collect money for the poor in Jerusalem. So you have Romans 15, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Acts chapter 24. These are all the cross-references which help us understand, if you would, the kind of coded language that Paul uses in these opening verses of chapter 16. So now we have the answer. Who is the collection for? It was the, for the Christian poor in the Jerusalem um, context. Okay, second question. This is a good question. Why were the Jerusalem believers poorer <clears throat> Than the others. Right? Let's think for a minute. Because, you know, I was told, this is the people on the radio tell me a lot, and the people on the internet, and the people in the nice books, they tell me if I'm God's girl and I'm God's guy, then I'm going to have plenty of God's gold. gold. All I need to do is have faith, I parcel out my money exactly right, I give the right percentage, save the right percentage, do everything the right way, you know, buy 50 pound bags of potatoes and store up meals and all that kind of stuff. Shazam! It's going to be great. We're not told here exactly why they're poor. But what we can do is we can piece together a bit of history and a bit of the Bible and come to an answer. First, a bit of history. Jerusalem at this time, despite its significance as a religious and cultural city, it was actually a very, very poor city. Indeed, Jerusalem was supported by and large, listen carefully, not by the people giving inside the city walls, but actually outside the city walls, if you like, the suburbs. And so wealthy Jewish people who lived outside the walls, beyond the walls, put money into that context. And so these prosperous individuals who lived outside the walls of Jerusalem, they sent money into Jerusalem to keep things going so that uh, the city wouldn't fall apart. Now, many of the Jews inside Jerusalem were somewhat poor. But those who had come to faith in Jesus Christ out of that society, they were poor still. Because... Part of the fallout at that time, in that place, for being a fully devoted follower of Christ, was that when the money came into Jerusalem, inside the walls, the Jewish people in Jerusalem were so irritated by the profession of faith of their their Jewish brothers and sisters that they were not for a moment going to pass out those resources, any of that money, to these, quote, crackpot Christians. And so... Many of the Christian people found themselves impoverished as a result of persecution which broke out among them, which, and and this is the Bible, this is Acts chapter 8, Paul himself, before he became a Christian, was part of. So they had this massive persecution. You can read in Acts 8, 1 Thessalonians 2. And so you had a group of people who, who once upon a time, things were going pretty well. However, they had encountered the gospel They had encountered Jesus Christ. They bowed to his saving power. They bowed to his kingly rule. In other words, they became Christians. Their lives had been radically changed by his grace and by his goodness. And as a result of this, they were not healthy and they were not wealthy. They were not living large. Their quality of life was radically reduced because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. However, they were getting the pulp beat out of them. 
They were, couldn't, they, or they couldn't get decent jobs because of Jesus. Chaos was unleashed on them because of Jesus. Thereby, they found themselves at this time at the very bottom of the uh, financial ladder compared to the prosperity of the people of God in other places in the known world, specifically Paul's other mission fields. Therefore, because this was happening, God, through Paul's pen, says, we need to do something. We need to do something. Now, for those of you who know your Bible and you're thinking right now, you're saying, well, what about Acts chapter 2? Okay? Because in Acts chapter 2, what we find is that these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, they were doing this, Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. This is terrific, right? When there was a need in the church, they would sell stuff immediately so that no one had need. So the question comes, that was a great start. But what happened? What happened? Because I was always told, and you give, and if you give, and then the get, and the give, and the get, it's always like automatic all the time. Well, well, it's clear what happened. You can only do that for so long under their circumstances. The wealthy Jewish people who are apparently enemies of Jesus Christ began to cut things off to their Christian counterparts. Then you add to that the persecution that happened. Uh, Mr. Mazeltoff, I can't give you this year's uh, contract. And not so many words, because you became a Christian. Uh, Mr. Shapiro, you're not getting that promotion. In fact, I'm going to have to lay you off. And not so many words, because you became a Christian. Now, again, let's just stop for a second. In our day, sometimes people say, well, wait a minute. You know, I was told that if you give the right amount, and then you spend the right amount, and you save the right amount, then things are always going to be fine and dandy. You'd want to say to that person, no, you wait a minute. Did you become a Christian only for financial stability and security? Is that all that Jesus means to you? Is that it? Why were the believers in Jerusalem poorer than the other believers? Because of their devotion to Jesus Christ in that context. Persecution broke out. Social evils were given to them. There was a famine which came somewhere around 10, 13 years later down the line. And clearly many of the Christians in Jerusalem were needy. Why were they needy? Because of their unwavering commitment to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in that context. They love Jesus more than security. They love Jesus more than stability. They love Jesus more than ease and pleasure that sometimes money can afford them or us. Question number three. Why was Paul so concerned? Well, the easy answer is because he was a Christian. Right? He's a Christian. We see suffering. We want to do something. Well, let me just break it down to you. First of all, the honor of Christ's name. Right? How could he live knowing that his brothers and sisters were under such hardship when other Christians in other places had so much money to help. And what would the pagans think about Jesus Christ and their Jewish counterparts if the Christians weren't helping their brothers and sisters? Think of it this way. If the pagan and Jewish citizens were being helped in their time of need because of the famine by their, their folks, if you would, then it's just not right for those who name the name of Jesus Christ who are hurting to not receive help from their brothers and sisters from other places who at that time are doing well. That's what Paul's calling for. The honor of Christ's name is at stake here. We've got to give some, some help. Second thing, this collection of money given to the needy Christians in Jerusalem was just a simple and concrete expression of their spiritual unity and their oneness in the body of Jesus Christ. This is so important, right? They didn't ask so many questions about who it is they're giving and why. They didn't just, just, just give. This is my family member. This is my in Christ sister, my in Christ brother. Now think with me. 
Because this might not be immediately obvious. The believers in Jerusalem are mostly Jewish. The believers as a result of Paul's ministry were mostly Gentiles. At that time, Jew and Gentile, it wasn't such a great connection. Some of the most conservative people in the Jerusalem church, and you can read about this in the middle chapters of Acts, some of the most conservative Christians had a pickle of a time believing that Gentiles could become Christians as Paul's missionary journey was declaring. Now, as I think about this, this comes to mind. The church that I pastored in Tennessee, there was a local church, a very older church. It's actually a Baptist church. And I went in to, to visit it. And you're going to think I'm lying, but I'm not. You had people who sat on the bottom, and then you had people who sat on the balcony. And the African-American people sat on the balcony, and the white folk, if you would, sat on the bottom. That was in like 2003, four. Come on. Really? Jewish Christians had a hard time believing that Gentiles could become people of Christ. With no Jewish background at all. So Paul sees this as a wonderful opportunity to express unity and to express solidarity. Right? Jew and Gentile are now one in Christ. So our background doesn't matter in Christ. The skin color doesn't matter in Christ. Personal bents, no. Taste, no. Wealth, no. Politics, no. All those things can so easily divide us. The issue here is we've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I am in union with Christ and I am in union by grace with every other follower of Jesus Christ. And the most practical and tangible way that we can express that unity Is that when we reach into our pockets and take out our money out of our resources and give to God's people, our people, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's Paul's concern. Very good. Very honest. Very needed in our day. Thirdly, he's concerned because the clearest evidence, at least one of the clearest evidence of the grace of God's work in our lives is when we give. Right? The opposite of that statement is true. In our failure to give, we begin to call into question the work of God's grace in our lives. Let me just tell you why. When we give, a piece of ourselves is leaving us. And Jesus spoke to this. Listen to Jesus. This is Luke chapter 17, verse 33. If we try to keep our lives, in fact, the Greek word means the, the essence of who we are, which includes giving. If we try to keep our lives... We'll lose it. This, this is a salvation statement by Jesus. Add to that 1 John three seventeen. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? So John says straight, if you call yourself a Christian and you've got resources, terrific. Then as a pattern of your life, right? Not a one-shot deal. As a pattern of your life, when need arises in the church, When God's people are in need, step up, smile, open your wallet, and give. That's what Paul's saying. Fourth question. When was this collection to be taken? Well, that's easy. You can do it whatever you want. It doesn't really matter. Send when you can. Is that what it says there? And and I don't want you to freak out on me when I begin to explain this. This is a general pattern and principle that God has given to the church through Paul. It's not a law, but this is a pattern and principle. The pattern is the collection is to be taken, verse 2, on the first day of every week. 
In the the Greek, it means every first day of the week. And these are the same instructions that Paul said in verse 3 that he gave to the churches in Galatia. So he says, first off, I want you to understand the importance of your regular giving and your regular attendance of worship, right? There's going to be a system here. There's a pattern in the time of your giving. And in a moment, we're going to see there's spontaneity, spontaneity, excuse me, in the amount of your giving. So what Paul is doing, he's calling the church to regular, consistent giving in their regular, consistent worship. Say that again. Regular, consistent giving in their regular, consistent worship. And this is a terrific illustration of the biblical pattern established by the church of celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ when? On the first day of the week. We would know this as Sunday. They called it later on the Lord's Day. And I was thinking that a long time ago I preached through the Ten Commandments and when I got to commandment number four, I received the greatest number of questions probably I ever have about commandment number four. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. I was like, people were like, for real? For real? Are you really saying this? In fact, we're actually going to tackle that commandment again later on in August. But for now, I mention that because in 1 Corinthians 16, this is the early evidence that Christians, they transform their allegiance and their worship of Jesus Christ and their giving to the work of Christ to the resurrection day, to the first day of the week. Again, the day that we would know or call Sunday. And it was on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, that they gathered together as a church, a visible expression of the body of Jesus Christ. And when they gathered to worship, giving was part of their gathering. Again, giving was part of their gathering. Now you check your Bible to make sure what I'm telling you is true. Check history and make sure I'm telling you is true. The day they gave mattered and the consistency of their giving mattered. So our question, when was the collection to be taken? I answer on the first day of every week. Well, can't Mr. Johnny send his checks from home? Can he do that? Well, I guess we'll take it. But worship and giving together. Giving to the Lord is part of the worship of the Lord. So when we put our money in the box, this is our pattern here. Know this. It is an act of worship to the Lord. Enjoy that. Enjoy it. I know it's hard to get the thing in the little slot. I get that. But enjoy it. Fifth question. Who's to be involved? And again, the Bible answers very straightforward. Verse 2b. Each one of you. Everybody? Yeah, everybody. Now, it's true that God, by His Spirit, gives to some people the special gift of giving. Nobody thinks they have it, but some of, the, some of you do. <laughs> Don't worry, I didn't get any laughs in the first service either. But I'm laughing inside, because I thought it was terrifically funny. But anyway, these people with the gift of giving, and you know who you are, <laughs> it doesn't mean that they are to carry the load only in the life of the church so that the rest of us don't have to give. That is absolutely silly. People are called to give everyone. Verse 2, in the church, we're to give. So it doesn't matter how much you have. It doesn't matter how little you have. Each one is to give. Therefore, it becomes a genuine cause of concern when the Christian gives nothing to the work of the Lord. Or if it's only like once in a while when they feel like it and not regularly, indeed weekly, as God commands it. I'm going to give you a quote from Martin No, this is Robert Murray McShane. This would be the 16th century. He was a Protestant preacher. Listen to what he says to his congregation. There are many hearing me who now know well they're not Christians because they don't give. Because to give largely and liberally and not grudgingly to God's work 
requires a new heart. Now, what's he saying? He's basically saying in order to give consistently, our hearts need to be changed. And God's the one that's going to have to do it. Because the issue here is not that we have a lot of money or very little money out of which we can give. The issue here is since my giving is to the Lord, and since Jesus is Lord, I ought to always be giving, verse 2b, each one of us. Which means every one of us here this morning, we are stewards of what God has given us. We're not owners. We are stewards to God. No matter how little we have or how much we may have in economic terms. Now there's a wonderful story in Mark chapter 12 that Jesus told about a widow who really, really impressed Jesus. Jesus was watching people putting money in the offering box of the temple treasury. Guys had coins, they were throwing them in. A widow came in and she put everything she had in the plate. So they would pour their bags of money in and you hear this. And then the widow came and you hear ping. Ping. And she put all she had. And Jesus didn't try to stop her. In fact, listen to what Jesus said. Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the rest. For they gave out of their surplus. It's easy. But she out of her poverty put in all she owned. All she had to live on. In other words, she zeroed out her checkbook for Jesus. Now did you hear that? What does that tell you? Well, this is what it tells me. That our generosity to the Lord's work is best determined by what we give when we have a little. Not when we have a lot. A person doing well financially can afford to give a lot without ever affecting their lifestyle or their well-being at all. This does not really impress Jesus. However, a person who doesn't have a lot, who must give up something for themselves in order to give to Jesus, Jesus will honor for all time as he did the widow. So we don't know the names of the guys who gave a lot of money. But we know about this widow who gave all she had. So the dollar amount that we may be giving right now might be large, but in actual fact, according to Jesus, to those of us who are well off, our generosity could be very small. Each one is to be set aside in the church on a regular basis, on the first day of every week, the resources. So we need to know a little bit about that word setting aside. The, the Greek word is translated for our English word uh, thesaurus. The thesaurus is a collection or treasury of words. And what Paul was saying was at this time in the pagan and Jewish temples, there were literally treasures or storage places in their places of worship. And it was customary for people on a regular basis to bring their monies and put them in the temple treasuries. So what Paul does is he takes this custom, he baptizes it and says, okay, on a regular basis, point of fact, on a weekly basis, I want you to set these resources aside and put them into the church treasury. In other words, we had to put in our day, oh wait, the money needs to get to the church and the church immediately needs to put it in the bank, both on a regular basis. It makes sense. So someone said, well, what about year-end giving? What about it? Can we still do that? Yeah, you can, but, but what? Clearly here, and in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 as well, the pattern is consistent giving on the first day of the week as an act of worship. Verse 2, in keeping with your income, so, that, so that's your charge. And in passing, for those of you who are setting aside money for a trust for the truth, church, excuse me, to give when you die. First of all, if you're doing that, thank you. 
But let me just ask you this question. Why in the world would you wait until you die? Wouldn't it be great to see what your money does when you're alive? I think it would. Clearly, there is something here about setting aside of our money that's important to God and imperative to God's people to remind us, I think, that all that I am and all that I have is only a result of God's goodness and His grace to me. It's so hard to live week by week in America. We have to live decade by decade and we think that's cool. Maybe not. Maybe not. If we gave all we had to God when it comes in terms of money, we are not giving God anything which is not already His. And God didn't give us money to make us feel safe. Money can't do that. At least it shouldn't do that. And if I decide then to give every, only every four months or only once a year, we do not benefit from that truth and from that public act of worship. Furthermore, the interest that one would occur, uh, occur excuse me, over the course of a year, you might be keeping it, but the church could use that immediately instead of just once a year. Now, I understand the logic of all that stuff, but I also understand the truth of the Bible. The amount given is personal, but the participation was to be total and regular. So the Bible teaches us that learning to give properly is an essential part of learning to worship properly. And we've never really learned to worship the Lord until we've learned to give to the Lord. We will never really understand the level of sacrifice that Jesus calls us to until it hits us in our wallets. Secondly, the local church then, while not the sole place of our giving, is to be the main place of our giving. Here in the local church, we support God's servants, God's people, God's ministry, as we entrust God's money to those who lead us. We begin in giving in the treasury then of the local church. Now, we come to the final question, which for some of us might be the most important one. And I don't think we're going to answer all of it, but we're going to answer most of it. How much was to be given? Right? That's what we want to know. How much? How much? Tell me the percentage. Well, percentage is not a New Testament principle. So for those of us who give 10% and think you're fine, you might not be. It's good that you give. But the New Testament gives no percentage. And the New Testament chiefly deals in ratios and proportions. And you see it there in your Bible. A sum of money and keeping with your income. In other words, there's a link between the sum of money that you and I have and set aside... And the way God has prospered us. We are not told in the New Testament to give an exact amount. We're not told to give an exact percentage. Indeed, in all of my studies, you find no amount, no percentage. And the whole of the New Testament, it's always free will. It's always proportionately. What about tithing? Well, what about it? Don't you believe in it? Yes, I do. But I believe it in the Old Testament. The Christian is no longer under this Mosaic covenant. Most of us grew up in church at least, you know, three times a year. We hear the old Malachi chapter 3 sermon. Tithes and offerings. And they took that Old Testament verse and tried to plop it down in a New Testament context. And clearly you cannot. Just think with, just for a minute. We don't do animal sacrifices anymore, do we? I mean, maybe the kids would love to see that, but we don't do that anymore. Why do you think we could take an Old Testament principle, law, if you would, and try to apply it in the new? You can't. You can't do that. 
How do we give? Well, this is the next week's points. We give proportionally. We give sacrificially. We give regularly. We give generously. We give so that there will be equality in the church. So that no one person is giving too much. If everybody is giving 10%, then the wealthy of the church, they're giving far less than what they could versus the poor. 10% to a poor person is a whole lot of money compared to 10% to a wealthy person. So 10% isn't the deal. It might be a good start, but it's not the deal. Let me say this and we'll be done. When you look at the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law and the establishment of tithes and offerings, there were three elements to it. There was a tithe for the Levites, which was for the government. There was a tithe for the national feast, which was for the community. There was a tithe for helping the needy. This was social services. And when you put it all together, it came to about 23% of the people's income. And they had to give that. They had to. Israel was a theocracy. In other words, this was a government ruled by God. God's law said, God commanded. You had to give that. If the nation was going to function correctly, you had to give your 23%. So the tithe was not a free will offering. But they were necessary. They were required. And there was a due date. Now that was then. But you cannot apply that to the church. 10% is actually too restrictive and because it's so easy to hide our greed by doing the 10% thing. You know, I give 10%, right? You know the story of the little kid whose mom told him, you know, you need to obey me. He said to him, uh, to his mother, I'm going to obey you on the outside, but on the inside, I'm not obeying you. So we could give the 10%. uh, 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 And on the inside, it's like, "Mm, mm. I'm only doing this because I'm afraid that God won't help my in my life. In Exodus chapter 25 and 35, God introduces to his people the free will offering concept. God tells Moses, Exodus 25, I need you to build a temple, tabernacle, excuse me. And this is how I want you to do it. I want you to ask people to give. I want those whose hearts are moved to give, to freely give, so that we can fund the building. So the standard was not percentage, but heart-directed, free will, generosity. It went so well... That in Exodus chapter 36, and you can read this for yourself, Moses had to tell the people to stop giving. They had to be restrained. So as soon as you cut off people from the requirement of the tithe, and I know a number of churches that says, you can't be a member unless you're giving this percentage. As soon as you cut that off, then the thing went crazy. 10% is a great start for most of us. But we can hide our greed pretty easy. Proportionately. Proportionately, generously, sacrificially, so that there will be equality in the church. The values of our world are for the most part materialistic. The values of the kingdom are not. And Jesus said that the best investment with the least amount of risk and the greatest dividend is giving to God's work, God's way, for God's people and God's church. There you have part one. Let's pray together. And I thank you for your attention.